why was Revelation written? Why was it written like it is? Why didn't he just put it out there plainly? And one of the purposes may be what Jesus spoke of in the parables when he spoke in parables. He said one of the reasons for speaking in parables was so that some people would not, um, that the non-believer would be sort of lost with what do these things mean. So we had to be careful because at the beginning of Revelation, it said this is a revelation to the saints, to his servants, it actually says. So that revelation, apocalypto, actually means an unveiling, a revealing. So this isn't something being hidden, but it is something that's being communicated so that the person with spiritual ears to hear, the person with faith in Christ, should be able to hear and see Christ in these things. Revelation was written for the church in a time of warfare and during the time of trial. The entire world has been under the curse of death since the fall, the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, man's original rebellion against our creator God, and the result of that was, was death and the curse. But now we're on the side of the cross so that as it was progressively revealed in the Old Testament, as people were saved by looking forward to the promises of God, we are able to look back at the promise of God fulfilled in us. So we see that Christ has defeated Satan in death, but the battle still wages on. The last enemy to be defeated, finally, we're told in Scripture, is death itself. And so we look forward to that. But that has to wait until the full number of the believers comes into the fold. And our job today, until then, is to maintain the faith. We are to be victorious over these trials that come our way by maintaining our faith in Christ. And Revelation is written to show us what we can't see with our fleshly eyes, the greater reality behind these things that we can see, only through eyes of faith, looking and believing in Jesus Christ and trusting in remain sane in this world. There are powerful spiritual forces behind powerful worldly forces of evil. In Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we fight a spiritual warfare and so as we're going to see and you're going to show up and it's like the guy that showed up for the gunfight with a knife it's like well you know you, you you're not well prepared so if you're in a spiritual battle and you put all the worldly armor on you want it's not going to do you any good spiritual darts and swords and things go right through that so you need spiritual armor and that's what we're told to prepare and that's what the gospel gives us is what we're given in the Lord's Supper even. Uh, as we see baptism and, and we go to his word by his spirit, we are given and are told to take on this spiritual armor. So this morning, we start what's considered by many to be the second half of the book of Revelation. So we've seen the church's battle in the world from one perspective, the seven letters to the seven churches, these actual churches that are representing the fullness of the church and how they're dealing with different problems in different areas of their life. And then now God is going to reveal what's going on behind the scenes so that they might be able to deal with these struggles. And we've seen the battle in the world from the perspective of the seven seals, 
where the spiritual forces of evil are ultimately unleashed against believers and unbelievers alike, but that God's people are sealed against ultimate harm. They are held secure in their faith, even in the midst of stuff that is thrown at us, uh, just as it is the rest of the world. Then we're given a glimpse at the church's battle in the world from the perspective of the seven trumpets, where the demonic forces of judgment are actually um, punishing hardened humanity. So that these things that are happening are also happening as judgment on the world. And so some of that spills over on us. But as we see it, we see that as trumpet calls of judgment on the world, but also trumpet calls to the church to rise up, O church of God, and, and shine. And now we come to chapter 12. And we're going to be um, seeing a proclamation of Jesus Christ as we're told. Well, we're told in chapter 11, we're the two witnesses. The church is two witnesses in the world. And we're to proclaim the gospel and the world's going to hate it. But we proclaim it. And it will be sweet in our mouths and bitter in our stomachs because it will cause people to rise up against the church. Um, if we would just... If we, have to be careful about doing we cannot tamper down the light tamper down the message in order to get people to not um, hate us so much and be careful that it's not just us being jerks in the world where we deserve to be hated but that it's a loving proclamation of the gospel to a lost world that the gospel itself is what is the offense and not we personally so the veil is going to be pulled back a little bit more beginning in this chapter and we'll see the forces of evil as actual personalities. They're not just mere forces. Um, when we talk about the forces of evil, we have to be careful that we're talking about the, you know, like in the forces of the United States, you know, the Air Force. It's not the military is a, a, a powerful force, but it's not just spiritual in nature. And so we have to be careful that we understand that spiritual forces are not just non personal forces, that they are actual personal, personal powers at work, personalities, um, as we see created all around us. So we'll see the church, Old Testament and New Testament symbolized as a woman, a mother, and Satan symbolized as a huge red dragon. And so let's go to the word of the Lord and, and see what he says to us. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. The word of the Lord. So, again, with all these different kind of signs, you can interpret a sign in any way you want to. So we had to figure out, well, what does God say about these? What are the clues that we see here about how do we 
actually interpret these things. And so when we look first, a great sign appeared in heaven. And what we see here is the sign is a woman. You can kind of picture it clothed with the sun. That's that means it's bright, shiny, brilliant in a way that you can't even look at. And then the moon was under her feet. I mean, it symbols people. Okay, the moon is under her feet. And so if something's under your feet, that means you're in control of it. it. Um, the, and on her head, there is a crown of 12 stars. And so we're going to look a little bit at the imagery of the dragon, but I shouldn't tell you this now. Don't duck, duck, go anything while you're in here. Uh, but it's really neat. Look up, because I want to say, all right, wait a minute, let's get... If you look at there's one picture I thought about putting it on the screen back here that really seems to look like what the imagery is here. God gave us words and not it's not it didn't come with um, pictures here except mental pictures. So you had to picture this in your mind, and you had to think, well, what is that imagery? And so one thing is in the Old Testament you always see um, the sun, moon, and stars. The sun, moon, and stars. They'll talk about the sun, moon, and stars. And it seems to be talking about things that are in heaven that really are not touched by all the wars and stuff going on here. Um, so if you've ever seen somebody, they go up into outer space, or I guess just space, isn't all space outer? So when they go up there and they look down, the world just seems peaceful. And you don't realize what all is happening because the heavens are not touched by the ravages of war and all the different things that happen down here on earth. And so this person seems to be, at least, above all this, untouchable by the things that are happening in this world. But also, more specifically, if you turn to Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, and this is the story of Joseph, sort of the beginning of Joseph's problems when he has this dream and he tells it to everyone and you know Joseph kind of becomes the favorite child being shown extra favoritism um, and the other brothers then jealousy arises and we'll look at this a little more in a moment but Genesis 37 verse 9 um, then he Joseph declared another dream and told it to his brothers and said behold I had a dream another dream behold the sun the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. All right, 11 stars, what's up? Where's the 12th star? Well, Joseph's the 12th star, and they're all bowing down to him. But, so he told it to his brothers. So you can imagine the brothers, it's like, even if this is from God, but she just had a dream, it's like, well, all right. Then he tells it to his father and to his brothers. His father rebuked him and said to him, What's this dream you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. And so what we see is the representation of the sun and the moon and the stars where um, his father sees that this is them. And so who are they? They are... Um, the church, the Old Testament church, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. And then you have the 12 sons of Jacob. And so when you finally have uh, Joseph, 
rising up and showing these symbols, then they're saying, look, you're talking about us. So one of the things we see is the sun, the moon, the, 11, the 12 stars overhead, then this is representing the church. And it doesn't just represent the Old Testament church. It's also representing the New Testament church. This is the church. And we're going to see um, how this gets played out in just a minute. So you see the church, but look what the church is. The church is it's a sign appearing in heaven, and it's a woman clothed with the sun. That's us. This is, this is how God is explaining us. Clothed with the sun, shining brightly. The moon, this is authority that's under her feet and her head. She has a crown of, seven, of 12 stars. And it says she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Chloe, I'm sorry. Maybe it's, it's not necessarily, I don't know, never given birth. Um, so, but I have been there. And she, well, that sounded odd. I was there when my children were being born and I know that I heard somebody else tell a similar story my wife is you know what the supposed to do they tell you is you're supposed to tell your wife to breathe as the one thing I remembered so she's there and I'm like breathe breathe and, and she looked at me with all the anger and vitriol she was capable of and said I am breathing so I started saying you're doing good you're doing good you're doing good and so that's you, you, coaching and encouraging are two different things so encouragement is the key to caring at the that point and um, so this woman the church and we're looking at the Old Testament aspect of it. It's very easy to think, well, let's talk about Mary and the birth of Jesus because that is the particular birth by a particular woman of the son, the male child. But it's not just Mary because it would not make particular sense, but it does include her as well. So she was pregnant and was crying out. I'm sorry, I'm repeating it again, but here we are. She was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, this one image I saw on Facebook, that was not Facebook, I Googled it. I duck, 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 doed it. I try not even say Google. So it showed, um, you know, the, I was looking for the dragon because the dragon's got these, you know, the, the seven heads but ten horns. And, and so I was like, well, how are they doing the horns thing? But, the, but then they would show the woman and the woman was always, like, the focus was on the dragon, I guess, because that's the cool-looking thing. And then the woman, but the one had the woman there, and, she, you know, she was, she was large with child. And, uh, and she was like, ah, she was in agony. And then you had this dragon with all these the, the seven heads that were just, like, back there just waiting. And she's just, like, you know, there about to have this child. And so, you know, it's quite the imagery that we're, we're looking at. And so, and another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. The word in Greek for great is mega. So it's this mega red dracon. Um, the word dracon in, in Greek, that's the word. Uh, and I looked up, like, where's the word dragon come from? And it comes from ancient Greek and comes from you know, Latin as well. And um, <clears throat> it, if you go back into the Septuagint, which is an old translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, um, the Bible that Jesus and the apostles um, particularly would have had in front of them, um, it translates the word for, there's, there's the serpent in the garden, and we know about that. We can translate that word in the Septuagint into Greek is office, and it means serpent or snake. There's another word, leviathan. There's another word that means serpent. So it's all these images. And so what you see in the Old Testament is this image of the leviathan, this image of the great sea monster, I think it's worded in King James, which is... Good imagery. I use that word monster because it's this 
this devouring force. And it almost always represents some demonically inspired kingdom in the world that's attacking the people of God. And so that's what you see. Uh, in Ezekiel, uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is called the great serpent. It's called, the, um, translated, the dracon. He is the, the, the leviathan. And so you see what this is representing. And also, it's passed down through uh, history of this a dragon. And so we all have the image in our minds culturally of the, the two-winged creature with the breeds out fire and things like this. And um, it, it, it's really an imagery that's been passed down. Uh, but this dragon has seven heads, and the number seven in scripture is like seven days of creation. It's a complete number, but it, but it comes to an end, and so it's not, you know, fully complete because there's a finiteness to it, and, but it has ten horns, which does represent like a pretty full and complete power. So seven heads with ten horns, and so I looked at this picture, and it had one of the dragons had two horns, and so it has a completeness of power, and so the horns represent this power, and we're told um, later in Revelation that these ten horns represent ten kings or even ten kingdoms. And so this is power. So that what we see with this dragon is that the dragon will manifest himself in human rulers and authorities exerting influence age after age. And a lot of people look for where are the ten kings. And so the, at, at one point, I haven't kept up with all this, the European Union had ten member nations. It's like, oh, there's ten. You know, or there's these ten. Once you get any union of, of powers that come together and there's ten of them, all of a sudden it's like this is it. That's, that's obviously the one. It's like that's not what he's talking about. This is a symbolic number representing the work of Satan in the world through those types of evil kingdoms. I'm not saying all the ten nations of the European Union were necessarily evil, but Satan works through human agency. And he will, if you want power, then what you do is, is you rise to the top of the most powerful thing there is in the world. That's why we had to be very careful with our um, devotion to our government in this country, because we are one of the most powerful country in the world and if our president is the most powerful person in the world that is uh, mentioned at times then we have to be careful because if you're satan that's what you want to get to you want to take over that but he's wily enough to know is that a good word he's wily enough to know that there are other ways to have power with different lands and different places and so we have to always as the church be on the lookout that we are, wherever we are, whatever country we're in, whatever government we're under, that we are following the word of God and that we do not do what anything, anything we're commanded by the authorities, if it is evil, if it is a disobedience to God, we cannot um, bow to neither of those things. We have to at some point say, no, this is wrong. I won't do it. I won't say that. I won't do this. I, I can't do that. Or you can't stop me from doing this good thing, whatever it may be. And to be very careful with this because the tendency in the human heart is rebellion against authorities. The fifth commandment is honor your mother and your father. And that is in general for honor those who are in authority over you. And we're told in Romans to be careful because authorities have been placed by God for the rewarding of the good and the um, restraint of evil. And as we've said before, but be careful because sometimes the dragon is behind that power and you have to watch that at what point do we say, 
no, this is not a godly power. And on his head are seven diadems. And these seven diadems, again, it's a complete number. And There's Stephanos and there's diadems, which are two different kinds of crowns. The Stephanos was like the, the, the laurel wreath that was given to the victor in a race or in the Olympics at the time. It meant you were a victor. If you had victory over something, then you'd receive the Stephanos. But the diadem is about um, glorious power. It's about um, authority. So it's not just that you won something, but you actually have authority. So this, again, seven heads on this dragon is manifesting itself in all these different ways. Ten horns of power, and then he's got seven diadem crowns on each of his heads. So you're talking about demonically inspired power. And so we just look at what the woman is doing in verse 2. She's pregnant. She's crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And then you have the dragon that appears. And he says that, you know, he sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven and casts them to the earth. So some people believe that's the fallen angels who are being cast to the earth. Uh, But whatever it means, it is that he is able to reach into the heavens even and cause calamity. Whereas before, you see some moon and stars aren't really touched by all this stuff going on on earth. But the, Satan has power beyond this earth in some way. So his tail has now sweeped into the stars, which obviously you can't take one-third of the stars in the universe, so it represents something else. So, you, And we're going to look at this later and get a better idea and a better look at what about the battle in heaven, what, what actually happened in heaven. But we're not there yet, so what we're supposed to be focused on is the church. But this enemy of the church has power in the heavenly places too so it makes him extremely powerful and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child he might devour it and so we see this throughout Scripture, and you have to see the, the overarching story of the whole Bible, the, the meta narrative, it's called the overarching narrative of the story. So, and it starts with Adam and Eve, and the serpent is right there. So, there's the creation of Adam and Eve, they're in the garden, they have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they also have the tree of life. And of course, you know, they're told not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The day they do, they'll die. The serpent appears, he's like, he tempts Eve to give, he sees the relationship that's going on, and he gets Adam to eat, and success. Didn't take long, and I took care of that. That was the dragon prepared to take care of who? Jesus Christ. Because you get rid of Adam, you get rid of Jesus Christ. Now, how much did did, uh, Satan know about this beforehand? I don't know. But he certainly thought that he could destroy this crowning creation of earth by the destruction of Adam. But then a strange thing happens. It's like these TV shows. There are these cliffhangers. It was like always watching Batman and Robin. You had to come back same time, same bat channel. You know, there were always, it's, you know, just as an aside, if you're going to just take care of business, don't do this elaborate thing and give them all this chances to get out of it, you know. So um, I don't want to tell you how to kill people, but, you know, just <laughs> why did they do that? And so you'd wait, and then next time, you know, there was some little button he'd push and he'd set free and so you always knew he was going to escape and there's a a latin phrase for that in literature called deus ex machina deus ex machina is what it looks and it's god out of the machine so that what happens is it's this miraculous rescue there's a cliffhanger no way they can escape and then the next thing (gasps) how'd this happen 
And this is what we see in Scripture over and over and over again as God is protecting the church. And what he's saying to us is, I'm still doing it today. So don't think that when things look bleakest, when it looks like this is it, that that's necessarily it. You haven't tuned in to the next episode yet. You don't know what's about to happen. So Adam and Eve, he's dead. They don't die. Why not? An animal is killed. They clothe. God clothes Adam and Eve with the skin of an animal and gives them the gospel in Genesis 3.15 and says, you're going to crush his, heel, his head, but he's going to crush your heel. There's going to be one who comes, and then the woman's going to be child, uh, saved in what? Childbirth, through childbirth. And it's going to be painful, which doesn't just mean physical pain, but it certainly includes that. But it, there's, there's a pain with having children and seeing death and seeing problems and seeing these things, especially in the line of Christ. And so Satan is like, well... That's thwarted, and Adam and Eve are cast out, and they are subject to death after that because they aren't able to get to a tree of life anymore. The church, the table, is a foretaste of the tree of life. It is a foretaste of Jesus Christ. It's him spiritually giving himself to us. When we die and we're in heaven and we're glorified, we get to eat freely from the tree of life that's apparently growing all over the place in heaven on both sides of the river and you can eat from its 12 fruits and you can eat from the leaves or for the healing of the nations and so we get to go back to this again then a child is born one who's going to crush the serpent's head but instead he crushes his brother's head <laughs> all is lost satan ha <laughs> ha and god warns him warns cain you know Sin is crouching at the door, but you must have mastery over it. They didn't care. So Satan has won again. And then Seth is born. And it's they start people start to call upon the name of the Lord again. It's like success for God's team. And then they begin to intermarry with, you know, the, the sons of God, marry the sons of sons of men, marry the sons of man, sons of God, marry the sons of daughters of men and the nephilim are produced you know we can talk about what that is some other time but they are um man becomes evil upon the earth and so much violence is upon the earth that god destroys it with a flood ha ha but noah finds grace in the sight of god and noah it, all the animals the ark this whole thing there's a rescue a miraculous rescue that takes place and all of it's pointing to the one who's going to come and finally finally rescue everyone because Noah and his family are told, go out now, replenish the whole earth like Adam and Eve were supposed to do. So they don't. The people are born, several generations are born. They all congregate together in one place. They build this huge tower up to God. And they're like, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to reach up to God. And God looks and says, well, let me see what they're doing down there. And he comes down and you know, Satan is like, ha ha, I have all men. They're not going to scatter and they're going to they're you know, worship themselves. And God just confuses their language, and they have to spread all out. And they spread all out, and then he calls one man again. He calls Abraham. What am I going to do with Abraham? Because we're still having some child is going to come that's prophesied to crush Satan's head. So you get to that, and his wife's barren and have children. And miraculously, she does have children. And then you get to um, Isaac. And Isaac is loved. And God tells Abraham, you know, I think Satan can look at this and say, look, Abraham now loves his son more than he loves God, and this is, this is good. 
I can, I can work with this. And then God says, sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac. <laughs> it's imagine Satan's kind of got to be like, wait a minute. That's, that's <laughs> what's he doing here? And then he goes to Abraham, does it? He's going to sacrifice. And God says, nope, I'll provide sacrifice. Again, pointing totally to Jesus Christ. And then Jacob is born. And his wife, Rebecca, is barren. He prays to God. And miraculously, the child is born. Jacob is born. Esau becomes murderous, wants to kill Jacob. Again, the line could be finished. But Jacob survives. And then you have the 12 tribes. And Joseph is born. They try to kill Joseph. Joseph saves everybody, gets them into Egypt. They end up in slavery. A pharaoh comes to power who does not know him. Who's that pharaoh and who's in charge of that? And then what does the pharaoh want to do? He wants to kill all of the slaves. And the Satan again, the woman in childbirth. And Satan, I will destroy all these people. And he attempts to do it. And God raises Moses up. And Moses leads his people out miraculously. And it continues on and on. You get to King David. And now you see the king, the one prophesied a king. And Satan sees this. We've got to take care of David. So what does King Saul try to do? Kill David. I want to kill David. Because he's just obsessed with killing David. But David is miraculously saved. He escaped Saul twice. And then you continue with all these kings, and some of them are evil, and some of them are good, and all these things happen, and you can see this dramatic thing happening in the course of the world. And even if you don't know much about Queen Athalia, if you look at 2 Kings 11, so it's back toward the beginning of the Bible, 2 Kings chapter 11. And what I want you to do, I don't want to just be like, I'm up here, just repeating things that maybe you know or don't know in the Bible, but I want you to see the drama of redemptive history. I want you to, to, to keep in mind, you know, the deus ex machina, the, the, the miraculous rescues that have happened to, to allow Jesus Christ to be born, the, the providential care that God has for his church in the Old Testament. And so 2 Kings 11, verse 1 now, Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, this is the daughter of Jezebel and her husband, Ahab. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, so this was a, uh, a descendant of David, and she was kind of ruling behind him, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. All right, so that's it. No more David. No more future David to be born. No Jesus, because she just wiped them all out. But, and this is, you know, where God's at work. But, so that's where that episode will end. You come back next time and you see what's happening. All right, well, she just wiped out the whole thing. That's like, you know, whatever TV show you're watching, that's it because the good guys are all out. Wait, wait, Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah. Ah, this is one of the Davidic kings. This is it should. There's this one kid, the son of Ahaziah, and she stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. 
Thus they hid him from Athaliah, so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord. So they put him in the temple, in the tabernacle, and he's, he's, he's hidden. And while Athaliah reigns over the land, she thinks she's killed everybody. Satan has won and is reigning over the land. But then you go to verse 10. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been David, King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guards stood, every man with his weapon in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar, and the house on behalf of the king. We now have angels surrounding us in this way that are protecting the church with the armor, not of King David, but of King Jesus. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. When, now, next week, when Athaliah heard the noise of the guard of the people, she went to the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar, according to the custom of the captains and the trumpeters beside the king. And all the peoples of the land rejoicing and blowing their trumpets. She's the king. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, treason, treason. Isn't that something? That's the way Satan is. He's murdering everybody so he, she can take over and going to say everybody's treasonous. Then Jehoiada, the priest, commanded the captains who were set over the army, bring her out between the ranks and put her to death with a sword with anyone who follows her. And the priest said, let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So he laid hands on her and she went out through the horse's entrance to the king's house, and there she was put to death. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. Then all the people of land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. That was the foreign gods that, um, that Ahab and Jezebel had introduced the worship of into Israel and led many people astray. Well, the king is back. They tear down altars and his images and they break it to pieces and they killed Matan the priest of Baal before the altars and the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord and he took the captains the Karites the guards and all the people of the land and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house and he took his seat on the throne of the kings so that all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. And it's just an image of Jesus Christ who marched through the city of Jerusalem. And he knows where he's headed, to the throne. And that's what we see in Revelation is the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. He's been trying to devour this child, trying to devour this child, trying to devour this child, and she gives birth. Now, to the male child, to Jesus Christ, also, and who is the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child is called up to God and to his throne. So they skip a lot in the life of Christ through this. How does he get up to the throne? Because he is put to death. He is sacrificed because he was the sacrifice that was the substitute for Isaac being sacrificed. He was the one who was sacrificed in the garden instead of Adam and Eve being sacrificed. He was the clothing of Adam and Eve so that we are clothed with his righteousness. And that is what Satan has been trying to stop all along. And you see him tempting Jesus. Worship me, and I will give you the kingdoms of the world. 
without you having to go to the cross. But he's caught up into heaven. In verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness. Why does she do that? Because now Jesus is gone. Satan's not gone. He turns his attention to the church. And his wrath and power are great. And he knows his time is short. And he's telling, God is saying to the seven churches, to us, this is what's happening to you. Jesus even said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. I, you will have trouble in this world. But she flees into the wilderness. And the wilderness in the Bible is a place of trial, but it's also a place of protection and, and preparation. And so when we look at the book of Exodus and the churches going from you know, being rescued out of slavery in Egypt, going to the promised land, we're told, you know, that's the, that's the church right there. You've been rescued from the sin and slavery, and you're going to the promised land of heaven. Right now, desert desert, but Jesus provides manna from heaven, meat. The problem with the people of Israel in the desert was they complained about everything. They didn't even want to go back to slavery again. And there's a song I love. It has a line that says, I can never entertain the thought that things were better back in Egypt. You know, you turn around, longing to go back to Sodom and turn into a pillar of salt. You know, so it's our longing to return to our sin, our longing to return to, to use that fleshly part of us to take care of business to do what Abraham was going to do and take matters into his own hands his wife couldn't have a child but his servant could so in the culture you could actually have a child with your maid servant and that child would become your heir and that must be what God's wanting me to do obviously and then God allows that he says no Sarah's gonna have a child she's way too old to have a child she laughs about that then ends up having to call her child Yitzhak Isaac which means laughter because over and over and over again, what the church does in the world is underestimate the power of God. Completely underestimate the power of God. To look at what's going on in the world and get, and man, I tell you what, there's plenty going on in the world. And there's so many outlets where we're able to see this person telling us the way that the church is going to be destroyed. This person telling us that people are going to be wiped out. This thing telling us, and I'm not saying all of those people aren't right, but they be right because a lot of them are contradictory but there's so much stuff that if you're paying attention and you try to look beyond superficial things it's enough to kind of make you <laughs> so there's the times they are changing but what jesus is saying here is like not really nothing's new under the sun this is the seven-headed dragon after the church after god's people but he has a place prepared for them in the wilderness, and you'll be nourished 1,260 days, three and a half years. It's the time of the church age, which we've looked at before. So, you know, you're going through times of trial and trouble, but it's not even a complete time. It's going to be cut in half. It's, it's a, you know, a day of the Lord's, a thousand years. You know, a, a, day, a thousand years of the Lord's like a day. You know what I mean. How would you say that? 
God's outside of time as we are. But what he wants us to see, this is the key to it, though. We're in a place preparing the church. You've been given the, the word of God as before us. We've got baptism to represent what happens when a sinner comes to, to faith, that we're washed with the blood of Christ, we're cleansed of all our sins. And you're not just left in the desert for the dragon to come up and get you. You're given the word of God. You're given by faith when you receive the word of God. You come to his table and you're in the church and you're protected and you're watched over by the, the sentries, the guards, you know, the elders, the ones who are supposed to be watching over this, the ones who are, who are facing the table, the ones who are saying, yes, we have the keys of the kingdom even, it's talked of with the elders of the church, where that, you know, you're able to say to somebody, you have, you know, I hear your profession of faith, it seems to be credible, and so let's do this life together. And you be baptized, your household is baptized, you're raised together in a church, and then you have the table that you can come to when the church sees that, that you're of sufficient age to acknowledge and understand what it is that you're doing, and then you can take, and you can eat. You're no longer having to be given. Baptism is, is done to you. It's just submission, but the Lord's table is for us to come to, for us to partake of. Until somebody says, I don't care about Jesus and what he says. I don't care about any of these things. I just want to be happy. I don't want to a beast, actually, for a while. So this is not your table anymore, and you can be excommunicated. And that's given the keys to the kingdom of the church. So what the church says is, we will not give the table to someone who is spurning underfoot the body and blood of Christ. If you're rejecting or denying that you need Jesus Christ as your Savior, then this the table is not for you, but for all of us who need the Lord. This is for us. I want to close with 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where you see the battle from the godly perspective, as Paul writes, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Just listen to this, and we'll pray, come to the table. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe. And so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. 
So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Father God, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. But while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And you have prepared us for this very thing, and you have given us your spirit as a guarantee. So, Lord, we are always of good courage, for we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, but we walk by faith and not by sight. We are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please you. For we all must appear before your judgment seat, the judgment seat of Christ, so that we may each receive what is due, what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. So we thank you that you've given us your table to promise us that you feed us with yourself and you nourish us through the wilderness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.